Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's Reading Aloud. My name is Nate Cordry. I host the show. How deep is your hangover today? Uh, I remember reading something in the newspaper years ago that amateurs drink on New Year's Eve and professionals drink on New Year's Day. I don't know if that's true or not, but I just wanted to share that with you. Um, let's get to, let's get to the episode um, because this is a whopper. I've spoken to some incredible people over the past year, um, some authors that I really admire, some wonderful musicians that I've discovered, um, and some talented uh, actors and performers, people who worked within the book industry. I, I've I've had a a really wide range of interviews, and they've all been fun and special in different ways because I've, I've been curious about them and their careers and or their process. This week is different. This week, I talked to an icon, a woman that I've admired and respected um, as long as I've known about her and have understood how important her voice has been to the human rights movement in this country. Gloria Steinem joined me on the show, and uh, we're going to get to it in one minute. Um, it was a nice lesson in asking for what you want. I have trouble in my life asking for favors and asking for help, help from people, and this show has been one of the, it's been a sort of a game changer because I need a lot of help from people to build this show to cut it together, to ask people to do the live show, the book club, to ask people to read their things. And I don't want people to say no, because I take it personally, which is foolish. And I need to get over that, but I still do at times. Um, but this show has, this show has allowed me to not take it personally when people say no, and to have more courage in asking for help and asking for things. It's okay to ask for things in your life because a lot of the times people go, yeah, of course. I just emailed Gloria Steinem's publicist and team and said, I would like to talk to her. She wrote a book. I have a podcast about books. And they wrote back and said, sorry, she's fully booked. She's doing all these shows and she's touring the world and, and she won't have time. But thank you for your, your inquiry. And I said, okay, no harm, no foul. A couple weeks later, they reached out again and said, hey, she has a day. She's gonna, she has like four hours in an afternoon, and she's going to do a bunch of interviews in that block of time. This is a mass email, email to all the people who reached out that we couldn't get to. Tell us why she should go on your show. So I responded. I wrote a paragraph about why I think a conversation on my show would be different from another show. Um, and then they wrote back and said, yes, she would love to chat with you. And then I got anxious. And then I put a picture of her up on my Twitter and Instagram accounts because I was very excited. And then I called my mother. Um, so here it is. Um, Gloria Steinem chats with me for a bit. Um, she wrote a book that came out this year uh, about her experience on the road. Uh, she's been traveling. Um, the book is called My Life on the Road. And she's been traveling for her entire career. And it's a wonderful, wonderful read. I cannot recommend it highly enough to you. Um, she's an amazing woman. Um, and yeah, then I get to chat with her. Let's listen to that. Here, here it is. Hello. Hi, this is oh. Nate. Is Hi, Nate. It's Gloria. Hi, Hi, Gloria. How are you? 
I think I'm all right. Are you all right? <laughs> I'm, I'm terrific. I apologize for giving you the phone, wrong phone number. I get my twos and my fours mixed up all the time. No, not, not to worry. We all think we're the wrong one, so it's okay. Exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> I know you're suffering through a debilitating cough. Is that true? Yes. It's just driving me crazy. I'm I mean, so sorry. I, I, I can usually suppress it, you know, sort of like going on stage with a broken leg. But it is driving me crazy. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, there are a few passages that I can read for you. Um, and I know we're short on time, so I'll, I'll dive right into it. Is that, is that okay with you? Okay. Of course. Yeah. Great. A Gloria Steinem is my guest today. She is a writer, lecturer, editor, and feminist activist. In 1972, she co-founded Ms. Magazine. In 1968, she helped found New York Magazine. Her books include the bestsellers Revolution from Within, Outrageous Acts, and Everyday Rebellions, Moving Beyond Words, Marilyn, Norma Jean, and As If Women Matter. She's won numerous awards, and in 2013, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama. Gloria Steinem, thank you so much for joining me on Reading Aloud. No, thank you so much for the invitation, and thank you for reading aloud. Uh, <laughs> I'll be doing a lot of it. I'm going to start by reading aloud. Um, I wanted to begin with the dedication, if we can. Um, I'll read this to get started. This book is dedicated to Dr. John Sharp of London, who in 1957, a decade before physicians in England could legally perform an abortion for any reason other than the health of the woman, took the considerable risk of referring for an abortion a 22-year-old American on her way to India. Knowing only that she had broken an engagement at home to seek an unknown fate, he said, you must promise me two things. First, you will not tell anyone my name. Second, you will do what you want to do with your life. Dear Dr. Sharp, I believe you, who knew the law was unjust, would not mind if I say this so long after your death. I've done the best I could with my life. This book is for you. Uh, this is the single most powerful introduction I've <laughs> ever read, and I want to thank you for your courage in writing it. I was wondering if you knew that this was going to be your introduction before you started the book. No, it, <clears throat> it was not. I thought of it only at the very end of the book in the way that sometimes uh, you only know the beginning after the end. <laughs> mm. And I think, uh, you know, though I had long since joined many other women in saying that I had had an abortion and as part of trying to uh, make it safe and legal. I had never told anyone his name. I think I had absorbed his prohibition. Mm. And so uh, <clears throat> I told individual people perhaps, but I hadn't focused on thanking him. And suddenly it just seemed right to me, both because all social justice movements are usually uh, started by telling the truth about issues and also because I just wanted to thank him. I realized that, in a way, the fact that I hadn't been forced to give birth to someone else had allowed me to give birth to myself. You must be getting an incredible response um, about this, I mean, about the book entirely, but also this dedication. Have, have women come up to you at book signings and at events and has shared similar stories with you? Yes, they they have. <clears throat> it it has gotten a, an amazing response. 
sometimes tears, sometimes stories. And I'm surprised that it hasn't got a negative response so far. Obviously, there are people out there who would feel very, very negative about it. And in the past, with other books, even though they had very different dedications, I've been picketed uh, by people carrying signs saying, Gloria Steinem is a murderer and so on for, for supporting safe and legal abortion. But as far as I know so far, it hasn't been negative. Does that still happen today when you speak, say, at a, at a university or a library, wherever you speak? Are there st- people still picketing you to this day? Uh, yes, but <clears throat> usually uh, the right wing being by nature hierarchical has to be organized to do it. You know, the, the thing about left-wing pickets is that uh, we're kind of individualized and we just do it on the spur, spur of the moment. Mm. Right-wing pickets generally have been organized. Uh, I've, I've never seen one lone <laughs> right-wing picket. Right. So it's, it's usually uh, some organization. You know, in the old days, the moral majority or currently, um, you, you know, whatever, whatever the, the group is. Sure. So, so so far, I think there hasn't been an organized effort. Uh, you you mention in the book that one of your purposes in writing it was to encourage you or to encourage us to spend some time on the road. End quote. What what keeps us from going out onto the road? First of all, I think we have an idea that growing up means settling down. You know that mm. if we are exploring or going off in any way, <clears throat> it's probably a youthful activity, not a regular activity. Also, I'm not sure we have uh, a very adventurous spirit about exploring our own country. Americans tend to feel travel is more worthwhile if it's in another country. Uh, for, I mean, for instance, when I say I'm going to uh, France or, or uh, Zambia, people say, oh, how exciting. If I say I'm traveling in this country, they say, well, it must be very tiring. <laughs> you know, I think, hmm. I think we hmm. uh, have a bit of inferiority complex somehow about our own country. And that keeps us from understanding it because it is profoundly more complicated and different from what we hear on television, which sure. is the phrase, the American people, as if, as if we were one homogenized lump. Uh, and even when we do travel, I fear that we don't do it in an on-the-road state of mind, that is, of openness. You know, we're pre-scheduled. Yes. We, have, uh, we take our priorities and our uh, names and our chains of hotels and eating places with us right. instead of just being open to happenstance. Do you, you think an enormous amount of that is just, is just based in simple fear, just fear of the unknown? Um, you know, I'm not sure. I don't want to answer for everyone, but I have a feeling it's not so much fear as it is um, just not having been schooled in it, you know? Mm. I mean, if, if each of us after high school spent uh, six months or a year in some national service, uh, you know, which happened during the Depression. You know, people went off to work on uh, arts projects and dams and, you know, and, and met different people and learned different things. There, there's kind of not a place for it. Mm. You talk about, in the book, uh, 
how defining a moment it was for you to work on the National Women's Conference in 1977 in Houston. And to me... Um, as a guy who sometimes <laughs> lives by fear, unfortunately, which I'm still trying to negotiate, um, starting a movement would have been so overwhelming. So, uh, too many voices, too many opinions, uh, 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 millions of cooks in an enormous kitchen. I, I see my brain sees disappointment and, and, and people and frustration and anger. How are you able to? get past all that. It just boggles my mind that you were able to get past all that and to see what could be at the end of the road. Well, I think it boggled my mind too because I was quite frightened much of the time, scared of what would happen, scared of of uh, disgracing the movement by not being inclusive enough or successful or um, clear enough. But what keeps you going is that you have a community of people with you. The very nature of a movement means that you are not by yourself. You are with people who share values and hopes and dreams and laugh at the same jokes, no matter how different you are. Right. And uh, kind of uh, help you if you fall down. (laughs) Right. So to have that kind of community is both the definition of a movement and what keeps you going in spite of all the difficulties. You say in the book, I I just long to go home, put my head under a pillow, and forget this event that I cared about too much and feared it would fail. I wonder if that may be the biggest point of it, this, this idea that, oh my God, we spent so much time and effort and all these people came together, and what if it doesn't work? What if at the end of the day yes, they well, say no? It, the, the more you care about something, the more you f- fear that you won't uh, do it the way you want to or the way it should be done or that it, you won't represent it well. Uh, you know, caring deeply makes deep concern. And so yeah. we really were worried about it. And uh, at every juncture, we weren't sure it would work. And yet, as it turned out, every single state and territory uh, cared about it enough, the women in in those places, to way, way uh, outstrip any predictions Mm. of how many people would come. Mm. So even in New York State alone, in Albany, when we had the state conference, which was in every state and territories to decide on what issues to bring up at the national conference uh, and... uh, you know what the what the process should be. Everything, twenty thousand people showed up in Albany. Wow! I mean, how incredible is that? Wow! That must have been an unbelievable evening. After, <laughs> with all those people showing up, when you had no idea how many would show up, it was just an enormous celebration. When mm-hmm. your when your head hit the well, pillow, it was a couple of days, and it was also chaos because we had to evolve a way for everyone to vote on a long list of issues and on a long list of names of of delegates. Uh, to go to Houston. So, you know, there was no lack of anxiousness, which is yeah. why I wanted to go home and put my head under a pillow. <laughs> but, but the fact that, that we were doing it together, you know, that I, that in Albany, Eleanor Holmes Norton was there, I was there, Bella was there. We all thought we had just dropped by for a few hours. We ended up all of us staying for two days without sleeping. Wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> and it, but it was that kind of community. One of the quotes that um, really moved me in the book is on page 100. You write, one of the saddest things I hear as I travel is, I don't know enough to be a feminist or even I'm not smart enough to be 
a feminist. And, and my question to you is, is what is your typical response to someone who says that to you? Uh, well, it, it breaks my heart to hear it. And uh, I try to respond by saying, look, <laughs> it's, feminism is here to help you, whoever you are, and to say we are all whole human beings, women and men, in our uniqueness and in our shared humanity. It's for all of us. Bell Hooks wrote a wonderful book called Feminism is for Everybody. Mm. And it's that spirit that we need. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, when you were 17, you're working in Adlai Stevenson's office, and it blows my mind that you, could, you, could, you were so aware of the sexism and the racism in the office. At 17, you were, it seems to me you might have been the only enlightened person in there to see it. And I wonder who gave you... The ability to sniff that out, that where the average person would say, oh, this is just, <clears throat> this is just business as usual, but you saw well, something different. You know, I, I think you're giving me too much credit because what Impossible. really happened was <laughs> that I had moved from Toledo to a uh, public high school uh, in Washington, D.C., and in that process, I realized that the Washington, D.C. high school looked different, and it took me a couple of days to realize that it was because everybody was white. Uh, because it was the last year still of segregated schools. Mm. So when I went to volunteer in that uh, presidential campaign, suddenly everybody was not white anymore. Mm. It's why I noticed it. Right. You know, not, not because I was so enlightened, but because I'd grown up in a place that was certainly not without a lot of racism, but at least we all went to school together then seen an all-white school, then been plunged back into a campaign where at least not everybody was white. You, uh, reading your book, you, you seem to be so able to see all sides of an argument and a discussion, um, and you're very generous to both sides of a discussion, and it seems like you're so unbiased. I know we all carry biases, and it's something that we all aspire to, to lose these biases, and... You talk a lot about the power of listening, and, and I wonder if you could elaborate on that, on how important well, listening I think, can be. I mean, uh, you know, I certainly get angry, and uh, especially because when confronting certain kinds of basic bias that the people who look at the world as a hierarchy, it makes me feel invisible too. So I, right. I definitely uh, get angry, uh, but I try to think to myself, okay, suppose I had just said an incredibly dumb thing. You know, I would want somebody to tell me, not just hate me, <laughs> and to tell me in a way I could hear it. So, you know, I try to start there and try to attach uh, the bias they have expressed to some different bias that they recognize. Mm, For instance, mm. they might not say the same stereotypical thing about Jewish people that they are saying about black people or right. about um, poor people that they are saying about women or, right. you know, whatever it is. So I try to to achieve empathy by attaching it to some other bias that they recognize. Right. You, you often have to escalate after that, but I just try to say, okay, how would I want someone else to tell me that I had just said a dumb thing? Right. You write so candidly in the book about your relationship with your father and his death in a hospital room in Los Angeles. You were traveling to see him. You changed planes in Chicago, and you got paged by your sister, right? 
you're walking yeah, through the terminal, right. and she gave you the news that she, that he had passed in this in the airport. Yes. Yes, and and I, you know, I continued for uh, from that point for many years, and still now to feel really deeply regretful that I wasn't with him before he died. But uh, a kind of magical thing happened while I was writing the book, which is that a couple of people who knew him in California wrote to me, and I discovered that he hadn't been totally alone, that he had at least seen a couple of familiar faces before he died. Yeah. And that I was able to, to put in the essay that it's not the same as being there myself, but it helped me. I wonder if that still crosses your mind when you travel through that airport in Chicago. <clears throat> no, it does. And it, it, it certainly especially crosses my mind when I'm on freeways around Los Angeles because they are so lethal and so claustrophobic. You have to continue traveling at 60 miles an hour. You can't stop. You can't turn off. Uh, you know, it's it just is so dangerous. And he died in a kind of battle station next to the highway of a hospital that was really there for a traffic accident. Mm. You, you sum him up so beautifully in the book. You say, all I knew was that my father enjoyed my company, uh, which is just so wonderful, asked my opinion and treated me better than he treated himself. What more could any child want? I, mm-hmm. I can't. No, I think that that's so. so uh, <clears throat> when I when I listen to my friends or I look at uh, at parents and children who are having a tough time, it it seems to me it's often because the parents are treating themselves better than their children, yeah. or not listening to their children, or not treating them as individual, unique, interesting uh, human beings. Yeah, it, it wasn't that my father was. Uh, perfect by any means. I mean, he was maybe one of the most irresponsible people with money you could possibly imagine. <laughs> uh, and he w- was not, um, I mean, in a way he was like another playmate, you know, because yeah, he was right. quite uh, irresponsible. But it, it didn't matter, basically, because I knew he loved me. I knew he listened to me and asked my advice. Uh, took took me seriously as another human being, even when I was very little. Yeah. The love for your parents is just so resonates in this big book. It's so strong. And uh, and it was one of the things that re- really stayed with me after reading it. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you who you read today. I mean, perhaps online, there that continues to sort of carry the torch for human rights and the women's movement. Are there any younger voices that inspire you today? Oh, yes, there are so, so many. Uh, I mean, I've just been reading Salamisha Tillett, for instance, who is a professor of Africana studies at Penn State and a woman I know, and she uh, has written uh, several very good books and has lately been writing for the New York Times. Uh, and I just, you know, learn so much when I read her. Ai-jen mm. um, Poo, who wrote an excellent book about organizing household workers, uh, home care workers, w- w- which you know she is a genius at, mm. and she she con- converts uh, any complaint into the simple, obvious fact that we that the population is, for instance, aging, that we would all prefer to stay at home, 
uh, and usually the care is better at home than institutionalized care, uh, or at least is certainly much less expensive. So, you know, we are going to need and we should treasure <laughs> the home care workers who are going to provide this kind of lifeline. We're going mm. to need like 100 times more home care workers than uh, computer savvy tech, high tech workers. But we keep on talking about the high tech workers and not welcoming the people who are going to be the home care workers. Right. You know, she's just very good at making uh, humane, readable, positive arguments. I love reading her. Then I'll continue with that because it's a podcast about books and reading. And, and I'd be remiss to let you go without asking for some book recommendations for, for my listeners. Are there, are there books on your bookshelf that you just that you most admire and are, are the quickest to recommend to, to, to friends? Yes, well, there's, oh, there's so many. I mean, <clears throat> I've been consistently recommending for several years a book called Sex and World Peace by Valerie Hudson and okay. several other scholars, though don't let the word scholars uh, ward you off because me. it's a very readable book. Okay. But it, it points out that for the first time that we know of, there is so much violence against females in the world, uh, from domestic violence here through sun preference in parts of Asia, through honor killings and sexualized violence in war zones, that for the first time there are fewer females on earth than males. It's a brilliant, important book because it shows that it's this kind of violence that predicts military violence. So this book should be uh, the, the foundation of our foreign policy. There's also Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, w which both tells you the depth of the problems of uh, racism and injustice in our ridiculous uh, prison system. Yes. And it lets you see, he, he does two things at the same time. He lets you see the depth of the problem in a true way, and he also gives you hope. Yeah. And, you know, the two most necessary, it's, it's really a, a wonderful book. Um, there's, there's also a book that's been out for a while, quite a few years, called Exterminate All the Brutes, which is a quote from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Mm. Uh, which we were encouraged to treat as fiction when we read it in school, but right. actually was reporting. Mm. Uh, and uh, it explains the invention of racism to justify colonialism. Oh. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, um, there, well, and, you know, poetry, I don't know, there's just, there's just so much. The one thing that I kind of regret is that I no longer have the time left to read novels because I'm just so entranced by, um, you know, all the, sure. the important books of, 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 of nonfiction. But I think poetry is my answer to not reading novels because if you poured water on one poem, it would become a novel. I, I feel the same way because I, I feel bad. I used to only read nonfiction and I'd felt badly if I read a novel because I thought it was too um, casual. I wasn't doing enough brain work. But there's just as much brain work in reading a novel is just a different kind of brain exercise. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So <clears throat> I, I hope I'm going to um, plunge back into novels because that was so important to my childhood and growing up. My idea of reading a book was I started it and I didn't stop till I finished. I would stay up all night or wow. more than all night 
just to just to finish, I I I had to know what happened. I I, I know we're running out of time, so I want to f- finish with two f- small things. Um, I I I consider myself a, a reasonably enlightened guy. Uh, I would I would consider myself a feminist, but I'm not sure I I do enough or I'm aware enough of the inherent sexism that I encounter every day because I become so used to it as so many men have. And, and I wonder um, if I can ask you what I can do as a fairly aware guy to be a better feminist. Well, first of all, that's a, a great empathetic question. And I think probably the answer to it is empathy. That is, if you consider that you are the same person with all the smarts and humor and experience that you have inside you, and you were born female, how would you be treated differently? And then, you know, you will understand what the problems are. Or if you find yourself in a group that is all male without a rationale for being all male, Mm. it's important to look around and say, wait a minute, where is everybody? What's what's wrong here? Mm. In the same way, that it is if we find ourselves in a group that's all white for no reason. Uh, you know, it's good to say, wait a minute, we're going snow blind here. How come right. in a country that is about to be a majority non-white country, right. we are still in this group? If, you know, if we, um, we're, if we understand that we're doing it, yes, we're doing it for other people, but we're also doing it for ourselves, then I think it helps mm. us... Uh, how shall I say, behave in a, in a human and helpful way and, and not a dutiful, uh, guilty way. Yeah. I'll, I'll finish the interview with this. Uh, the last three sentences of the afterword uh, read, My father did not have to trade dying alone for the joys of the road. My mother did not have to give up a journey of her own to have a home. Neither do I, neither do you. It is the best possible way to say goodbye to your reader. And um, I cannot thank you enough, Gloria, for coming on Reading Aloud and uh, sharing your insights with us. It was very generous. Uh, well, I, I thank you so much, too. And no one else but you has read aloud that ending, which matters so much to me. So I thank you for that. You're very welcome. And th- thanks again for your time. Mm-hmm. Feel better. Okay. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Did you hear at the end there when Gloria Steinem paid me a compliment? I do. I remember. (laughs) I'm probably going to still remember tomorrow and like six months ago and maybe 50 years from now. Um, Wow. I just cannot, uh, I can't, I can't. To thank her enough for coming on this show. What a wonderful conversation. I mean, she is someone who's been answering questions basically for her entire adult life. So she is a very compelling interview. Um, I can't can't thank her enough. Thank you, Gloria, for joining me on Reading Aloud. And thank you for listening. Happy New Year again. Uh, The book club. This month, uh, we're two weeks away. So you still have time to go to your local independent bookstore and pick up Lauren Groff's Fates and Furies. It's about a troubled marriage. Uh, I'm getting just amazing feedback on it. Um, And if you want to be a part of the book club, please join us. There's plenty of room. 
Send us your thoughts, and we'll get to them on the air. You just uh, send us an email at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com, and uh, we'll record that on the 13th of, Jan- of January. So pick up the book, read it, and be a part of the show. Uh, we'll be back with that book club in two weeks. Until then, my name is Nate Cordry, and thank you so much for listening and uh, helping to spread the word about reading aloud. I love doing this show, and I want to do uh, like 100 more episodes. Okay, talk to you soon. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.